I'm April and I'm Steph and you're listening to The Thirst, a podcast that looks at the latest in pop culture as well as dissecting some very important topics of our choosing. It's July 2023 and we're here with Under Review, an opportunity for us to talk about some recent releases in film, TV and music that have piqued our interest. This episode we're diving deep into the cultural phenomenon that is Barbenheimer. Cinemas across the world have been hosting sold-out double bills of the unlikely combo Oppenheimer, the biographical thriller from Christopher Nolan, and Greta Gerwig's Barbie. So don't forget, these will be spoilerific discussions, and we will add timestamps into the episode show notes so that you can avoid any spoilers. Hi, April. Hello, Steph. Hello, how are you? I'm fine, thanks very much. How are you? I'm absolutely great. I'm great. I, uh, I'm, yeah... Fine. We've spent like good, I don't know, 25 minutes with me trying to work my Bluetooth headphones, but... That's fine. That's just a byproduct of recording a podcast, I think. I think that's relatable to other podcast creators and also just generally people that have to deal with Bluetooth headphones on a regular basis. It's just, it's an organised kind of morning, I would say. They're a pain. Yeah. And you're in a new house. I'm in a new house. Uh, I'm in a new, new view, not sitting on the floor of the podcast studio I had constructed for myself I'm now looking at a nice blue sky today this is so personal someone who lives opposite me has um playstation curtains really intrigued by that I hope they're 35 well the odds are I think they are probably a grown man bachelor pad um and also the pigeons can you see the pigeons uh if I lean I can see the person who lives two doors down from me that does have a large collection of pigeons in his garden it's like Mary Poppins over there I love it yeah I might might befriend him (laughs) please do we can have him on the podcast (laughs) um can you tell me what pop culture has been on your mind this week uh okay so two things one is very much linked to something or someone we will be discussing in this episode which is Killian Murphy I was gonna say is it Killian Murphy's eyes oh it's just Killian Murphy you know like I a point I was going to raise later when we get into our Oppenheimer discussion but I will just say now is that I do find this like slight belief that we're experiencing a Killian Murphy renaissance to be slightly inexplicable what renaissance he's always been here the man's been around he's been busy He's been doing stuff. He's always been here with his beautiful eyes and his short little stature. Yeah, but I've, I think I've just must have interacted with like multiple posts that are Killian Murphy related on Twitter. So now in my like for you page on Twitter, I'm just getting like Killian Murphy update accounts that are just sharing <laughs> pictures of him. Or my favourite so far has been like, obviously there's been much discussion of late on the internet about the concept of a girl dinner, but I've just really enjoyed <laughs> that like someone will put like girl dinner and then it's just a picture of Killian Murphy. Love it. Killian's the new Pedro Pascal for this month isn't he he is this month's yeah internet darling internet boyfriend the internet moves very quickly yeah so i've i've just really enjoyed that he is five seven um that's worth addressing but we move <laughs> tiny little perfect prince just a little perfect prince um and the less upbeat one is that i've just been thinking a lot about Sinead o'connor oh yeah and listening to a lot of Sinead o'connor this week actually since her really untimely and sad passing but like what an icon what a legend absolutely amazing woman and um yeah, I was re- I was reading recently this 
biography of Shane McGowan, which I think I mentioned to you before for another podcast. And um, she, I had a really vivid memory of her from that because she was basically in the entire history of his friendships and relationships, the only person that said to him, like, you're going to kill yourself if you don't stop drinking and doing drugs. And they fell out because of it, because he didn't want to hear it. But everyone else enabled him. And she was the only one that was like, I'm not going to stand by and watch you die. So again, just another example of her being just a really, you know, a good human to the people around her. Very perceptive and outspoken in a way that I think is just very, very admirable. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what pop culture has been on your mind this week? Well, Killing Murphy definitely. Maybe just Men with Blue Eyes. It's a, it's a really good thing, you know. Yeah, yeah. I've been watching The Bear season two because that's finally dropped in the UK, which I'm sure we'll be talking about soon. And Jeremy Allen White has been letting himself be known to the public quite a lot at the moment. Any opportunity to walk around shirtless in tiny shorts. Just working out in the street. Just doing push-ups on the pavement, as you do. With anyone else, I just would simply would not tolerate that. But um, I think it's, it's pretty special. Nice to see him at the picket line too. Um, speaking of picket lines, Colin Farrell also looking very sexy. Can I just draw attention to in that picture of him uh, on the SAG trike line? The, the best thing about it is... Well, there are many good reasons to look at that picture, but I just like the fact that Shay Wiggum is in the background. I know! <laughs> I think you'll say the best thing about it is his penchant for um, headbands, which he really, really loves. Whether he's out jogging or just taking a stroll, that man loves a headband. So, yeah, probably mainly just thinking about men with nice eyes and eyebrows and general facial features at the moment. Good preoccupation. Yeah. And of course, Barbenheimer. That's been somewhat on our minds for the past, well, definitely for the past week, but certainly for the past few weeks as well, as we were waiting for the the build up to this incredible double release, um, which I'm really glad that we can talk about now and that we've experienced together. Uh, I'm just obsessed with the fact that this already has like the world's biggest Wikipedia entry of its own. Isn't it hysterical? Yesterday when I was doing prep for this episode, and I obviously inevitably went on Wikipedia just to look something up, um, I noticed on the page for Barbie, the film, it references Barbenheimer and that there was a link. So I clicked on it and I was like, oh, I wonder if this will just be like a three sentence throwaway thing. But this is like literally like a thesis length with over 100 citations. <laughs> it's hysterical. Like I love, I just love the Wikipedia academics, man. They're great. Appreciate it. I really, really do love it. It's yeah, it's a really good read. It's fascinating. Of course, Barbenheimer is a, is another word that's entered our lexicon that we didn't have like six months ago, and it it kind of came about because social media absolutely exploded when we collectively fully realised the hilarity of releasing Oppenheimer and Barbie on the same day. So having Mattel's biggest toy export versus the father of the atomic bomb. And it became sort of billed as the movie event of the year. Um, and funnily enough, is now perhaps one of the biggest movie events in history. Isn't it? Isn't it just insane? Like, it's just such an, an insane thing to have entered the culture. And to see, like, everyone get behind it in such a, like, enthusiastic way has been, like, genuinely delightful. Yeah, it's it could have had... There were so many different outcomes for this, potentially. So in the biz, this is kind of known as counter-programming. So you you release a kind of tonally different film on the same day as a major film so that you're accounting for that gap in audience, I guess. Mm -hmm. So, for example, in the past, we've had The Dark Knight with Mamma Mia, which actually is a good pairing compared to Barbenheimer as well. So you've got a, a quote-unquote bigger 
bigger major film and a smaller film. I'm not really sure. Would Barbie be seen as the major and Oppenheimer as the smaller? It's interesting, isn't it? Because I feel like they are like mutually on the same level, really. But I suppose yeah. there's a lot to be said about the, I suppose, the binaries of high and low culture. Like you could, you yeah. could totally pair it in that way in that like Oppenheimer is being posited as this like very serious affair. And then Barbie is obviously just this like lighthearted. General like blockbuster summer release. Yes. Yeah. But then in certain circles, like our, you know, I don't know, regular movie going circles, Oppenheimer would be seen as one of the biggest releases as yeah, well. Yeah. But yeah, rather than these becoming a, are you going to Oppenheimer? Are you going to Barbie? Whose side do you fall on kind of argument? It became completely complimentary and a double bill that everyone wanted to go and see together. And as a result, the box office predictions for both of these films have been absolutely smashed it's the first time two movies released in the same weekend have grossed more than 10 million each um it's apparently 79 percent of tickets sold over the first weekend were for both films of everyone who was going and as of recording barbie's set to hit the 700 million mark in box office takings by sunday which is the biggest week in history for a warner brothers film um, and it's the top grossing movie ever for a solo female director. And Oppenheimer is going to reach 300 million this weekend easy as well. So it's, it's the fifth biggest week of all time at the domestic box office behind Avengers, Star Wars, Avatar. Probably, I can't remember what the fourth one was now, but, um, just, you know, very, very big properties that we'd expect to be in those sort of top grossing weeks. And now we can count Barbie and Oppenheimer in that as well. It's just, it's insane. Like I had read this week that like the last week in ticket sales has been the biggest for the last 10 years. And considering that like the recovery period for cinema post COVID has been quite fraught with lots of cinemas having to close or sort of publicly stating Mm. that their ticket sales are extremely low and that people have basically decided that going to the cinema is not necessarily something they want to kind of actively integrate as part of their lives anymore. Um, Mm. It's just been really nice to see this sort of resurgence. And I know that our experience of seeing Barbenheimer at the weekend was just like, it's been such a long time since I've seen cinemas as packed as they were. Oh, so busy. Yeah, our our local picture house had said that they'd had over 2,000 people come over the weekend period and that's for a cinema that isn't particularly big that's insane and it was really Mm. lovely to see it was it was wonderful and I was reading in our local newspaper about you know we're somewhere in the region that we have quite a few very small quite rural cinemas as Mm -hmm. well that are really you know struggling especially at the moment and they said that they were selling out you know screening it simultaneously across their the the three screens that they have and it was all selling out and that actually the hospitality the restaurants around the businesses uh, around the cinemas as well were doing really well were booked out because people were choosing to have meals in between um it's just been a glorious thing to see hasn't it and we saw lots of costumes and people just getting really involved and really excited for Barbie in particular, obviously. And a huge range of kind of age ranges too. We saw like quite young teenagers going into Oppenheimer. I was thinking, wow, they definitely wouldn't have chosen this if it hadn't been on TikTok. (laughs) (laughs) But it's just brilliant to see. And they are different films, but there are also, I think people have been drawing similarities between them too. They're both quite existential. There's a kind of certain element of fantasy versus reality with them. You've got the big ensemble cast. And I was reading, I think maybe in the Washington, that the, the two films also have this idea about the corruptibility of men. So mm-hmm. actually they're quite complimentary. 
contradictory in a way. They are. And I, th- I found it really interesting that they are sort of essentially both COVID productions, as in like post-COVID mm. productions, productions that came into being during the lockdown periods. I know that Greta Gerwig has talked a lot about that from a perspective of Barbie, as it being something that she was writing about during the lockdown. And I think Christopher mm. Nolan as well had obviously been working on this particular script during those COVID periods. So it's very interesting to think about them in those terms as well, particularly given the, like you say, the topics and the uh, themes. And we'll talk a bit more about, I think Barbie in particular is fascinating by way of its success because it's kind of done more than I've certainly expected. But Mm. do you think Oppenheimer would have had the level of box office success it has had without Barbie? Or do you think that has helped it somewhat? Well, I thought about this a lot, actually. And I think that there has, it's a really interesting case of what happens when the internet really gets behind something Mm. and I think that has definitely helped the drive towards getting people to go and see it because it's that word of mouth that kind of creating a cultural movement um but I also think that Oppenheimer in particular I think there would have been a lot of people that would have gone to see it because it is the Christopher Nolan film Mm. um those are always kind of big cinematic spectacles in themselves but I do I do think it would be remiss to sort of not discuss the fact that I think they have mutual this sort of this act of counter programming has worked to their advantage. Oh yeah, absolutely. There's certainly I imagine a wider breadth of audience giving actually maybe both films a try. I can definitely know that some people might be going to see Oppenheimer. For example, those young lads maybe because they'd seen it online or heard it talked about online. I feel like there were a lot of people in the cinema when we went and saw both of the films, actually, that probably wouldn't have been there otherwise, you know? Yeah. And that's not necessarily a criticism, but it was just a very interesting observation. Mm. And likewise, there might be people who went to see Barbie that would have otherwise turned their nose up at it. Yes, definitely. So um, it's just been absolutely fascinating. Um, and it, it kind of shows no signs of stopping yet, especially on the internet. My Twitter is still just newsfeed upon you that scrolling 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 memes in reaction to these two films it's just been wonderful to observe and I'm, I'm really hoping that it doesn't start to sour anytime soon no i hope i hope so too long may they reign so let's dig deep into the barbenheimer double bill phenomenon that is oppenheimer and barbie and we will begin first with what was our first viewing of the day when we saw the double feature it is Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer. Are we saying there's a chance that when we push that button, we destroy the world? Chances are near zero. Near zero. What do you want from theory alone? Zero would be nice. So Oppenheimer is a biographical thriller film written and directed by Christopher Nolan, who's perhaps best known for the Dark Knight trilogy, but also known for Memento, Inception, Interstellar, Dunkirk and Tenet, as much as I'd like to forget that Tenet exists. It's based on the 2005 biography American Prometheus by Kai Bird and Michael J. Sherwin, and the film chronicles the life of J. Robert Oppenheimer, an American theoretical physicist who was pivotal in developing the first nuclear weapons as part of the Manhattan Project, and thereby ushering in the atomic age. So Killian Murphy stars as Oppenheimer, with Emily Blunt as Oppenheimer's wife, Kitty Oppenheimer, Matt Damon as General Leslie Groves, director of the Manhattan Project, and Robert Downey Jr. as Louis Strauss, a senior member of the United States Atomic Energy Commission. 
The ensemble supporting cast also includes Florence Pugh, Josh Hartnett, Casey Affleck, Rami Malek and Kenneth Branagh. So the project's been publicly in the works since September 2021, when Universal Pictures won a bidding war for Nolan's screenplay. And apparently, Nolan's stipulations uh, in this bidding war included a production budget of $100 million, an equal marketing budget, an exclusive theatrical window ranging from 90 to 120 days, 20% of the film's first dollar gross, which he's probably very pleased about now, and a three-week period before and after the film's release in which Universal could not release another film. So the filming took place in 2022 in a combination of IMAX 65mm and 65mm large format film, including, for the first time in history, sections in IMAX black and white film photography. It was released in the UK and the US on the 21st of July, grossing over $252 million worldwide, and it's received critical acclaim, with particular praise for its cast, screenplay and visuals. And Variety wrote that the film needs to gross 400 million worldwide for it to be profitable, which blows my mind. But I would imagine they are well on their way to achieving that. So we have talked about Christopher Nolan films before, I am sure. And let's start by looking at our expectations and our relationship to Nolan's filmmaking. Would you say would you say you're a fan of Christopher Nolan? I actually quite like Christopher Nolan. And I feel like that's something that you needlessly get grief for saying these days. Um, Is he a boy's filmmaker? Yeah, maybe. I don't know. People just get a bit sniffy when you say that you like actively like Christopher Nolan films. But I did go back through his filmography and I was like, I actually like all of these. The only one it I'm mostly like, checks. Yeah. The only one I'm like less hot on is Tenet. But that's because it was just very boring and very confusing. But then I did also watch it at home. So I'm not really sure if that made a difference. Anyway, just... But that's of, of his filmography. That's the only one where I'm like, eh. Yeah, it's pretty pretty good isn't it yeah i mean i really do like the majority of his films um i always look forward to seeing what he does next genuinely because he is a filmmaker that does care about the art of filmmaking you know Mm. like he's extremely um i saw that you obviously you mentioned the imax of it all i cannot remember what the actual measurement is of the imax film the 70 millimeter version of it i think it's like 11 miles or something Mm. but like he goes to extreme lengths to like make his work happen he's a vocal supporter of cinema isn't he yeah yeah he is and i think that like in this day and age and given that you know um the writers are currently on strike and the actors are also on strike i don't think that's something that you should take for granted so Mm. yeah was really looking forward to seeing this not because i have any deep-seated interest in um j robert oppenheimer because i don't i know absolutely the bare minimum but you know the cast was just insane and kept growing and growing and genuinely anything killing is largely a yes from me so i was kind of i was really looking forward to it i think i felt the same i would say i've got a a good relationship with uh, christopher nolan i love the dark knight trilogy and i feel like my first ever viewing of the dark knight felt like it was a total game changer in terms of what a kind of action-led blockbuster could achieve. Yeah. I think I thought Inception was a bit overhyped. Sorry, Mm. everyone. Um, But I I like Dunkirk. Probably will never watch that again, but it was very good. Not so good on Tenet, but Memento is a great film. Uh, He has got a really strong filmography to date. And he is the kind of... He's like the king of the cerebral blockbuster, isn't he? Mm -hmm. He kind of... I do admire 
as you say that he's a he's sort of a vocal supporter of film and cinema. I really admire the sort of scope and the the beauty of his cinematography and the way he plays with sort of narrative structure and big, quite existential themes. Um, I do have quite a low interest in biographical films about great men. Yes. Um, and I remember Wes making a comment quite early on where he was like, oh, I don't know if I'm going to go see it in the cinema because I'm kind of not interested about great man makes great invention films, you know, like mm-hmm. the origin of the Nike tick and the <laughs> apple and do you know what i mean and i, I totally get that i was like yeah i'm kind of the same like am i really interested in great man makes atomic bomb i think maybe i also worried in any other hands i would worry about how deifying this film might be towards its subject but then it's christopher nolan so he you know he's an expert the cast is amazing feels like everyone in the world is involved in this film killian in particular as you say florence is sort of the woman of the moment Funny that she's in another film after Don't Worry Darling, sort of on the Manhattan Project. Yeah, that's true. I think I was mostly looking forward to it. I did worry after Tenet that a three-hour film might bore me or that I at least wouldn't be able to hear anything because in the cinema for Tenet, I, I, I could not hear the dialogue at all. I feel like we discussed this maybe in passing, but I said to you when I watched it at home, I had to watch it with the subtitles on. Not because I do genuinely enjoy watching films with subtitles on, but because I simply couldn't hear anything. Couldn't hear a fucking thing. Honestly, no idea what was going on. And, you know, for quite a convoluted script, I was like, oh my God, this is not the return to cinema after COVID I wanted. So I think that made me a little bit sceptical just because I'd been burnt by the last film. But of course, wanted to give it a chance. So um, I think we were looking forward to this and it was the first film that we saw that day, caught an afternoon screening. As you'd said, it was absolutely packed. Quite a well-behaved cinema, actually, I will say. Both films were quite well-behaved in terms of sort of decent cinema etiquette. (laughs) No, not loads of talking. Yeah, I'd seen in advance of actually us going uh, lots of conversations about people being slightly concerned that people don't know how to behave in cinemas anymore and I know this mm. is something that we've discussed amongst ourselves with regards to cinema and actually going to live music performances that I think mm. post-pandemic I have noticed an uptick in people being slightly feral in public spaces. Oh god yeah people just don't aren't quiet anymore. No it's fascinating and then just as a, a sort of a counter to that when we went to see the new Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning on Friday night there was a man sat two seats down from me that just kept checking his phone every five seconds we can all see the we can all see the phone light what are you doing yeah it's like a really expensive hobby to have if you just want to talk or look at your phone through it there are so many free places you could go to to do those things yeah so i was i was relieved that both of our experiences actually of both oppenheimer and barbie were largely um irritating people free so tell us what were your general reactions to this film how did you feel when you came out of it what did you think okay so i cannot understate how much i loved this it was really fucking good (laughs) (laughs) i was actually the closer it was getting to us seeing it and it coming out generally and us going to see it i was beginning to become slightly skeptical that it actually just like wasn't going to be good or that i would have actually gotten myself needlessly excited for it and that it would be shit but I thought it was fucking great. I think the pacing of it is brilliant considering it is three hours long. I know I've seen lots of criticisms about that final hour. However, I loved that final hour. Yeah, so me too. Will. 
the editing in this film is incredible too. Shout out to Jennifer Lame who did the work on this because it's just it's just top notch. Um, I will say that for not reasons connected to the film in any capacity, I don't think I did have a panic attack, low level panic attack about ninety minutes in. However, I do think it is genuinely a reflection how, of how like profoundly moving I did find the build up. And the execution of the Trinity test in particular. I think maybe you had a panic attack brewing and this tipped you over the edge. I'm very sorry. It's not funny at all. It's not funny, but it is funny in the sense that like, I sort of want to go to see the film again because I did have this, yeah, very low level. I haven't had a panic attack in a really long time and I had a very low level panic attack during this. So when we left the cinema, I was like slightly wiped out and borderline hysterical. Testament to the film's strength. Genuinely testament (laughs) to the film's strength, I think, to be honest. Um, I just think it did genuinely blow me away in a a way that I did not actually anticipate. Like, I think that I found Dunkirk very overwhelming. And I think we did talk about Mm. it at the time when it came out on an episode. And I think that was very overwhelming from a sensory point of view and just from a kind of, isn't it insane that this kind of happened and that people went through it? perspective. Which I do, to his credit, think that Christopher Nolan is very good at doing. Actually, this is a very this film Oppenheimer is a very interesting pairing with Dunkirk yeah. considering it's very similar time frames but I really loved it I actually am trying to find some time to go and see it again which is a tall order considering it is a three-hour film yeah it does take half your day yeah I just thought it was great I'm trying to work out what I think is like objectively Nolan's best mm-hmm. and it this is up there I think it is. Yeah. I was initially concerned, as you said, I was sort of initially concerned about the pacing and the narrative structure, which is not helped by the fact that I found Tenet very confusing and sort of maybe a bit purposefully opaque. Um, There's a lot to follow here and it's not a very conventional sort of perspective or narrative structure sort of moving from that kind of very personal story of Oppenheimer to sort of the distant almost objective storytelling as well but I think the intricacy here really really pays off and it tells a difficult story about a controversial figure a huge moment in history where our humanity is kind of put under the microscope and it did a good job of interrogating Oppenheimer's morality without yeah. it feeling like it was glamorizing him. That, and that's what I'd been concerned about actually going into this. And I know we talked about this with Wes actually, was that I, and as you pointed out in your anticipation feelings about this, I didn't want to go into a film that was attempting to humanize and give a perspective on Oppenheimer that was you know he was actually okay yeah kind of like you know yes he did terrible things but he was a great man who Mm -hmm. did terrible things Mm -hmm. you know um and I didn't feel like it I don't think it necessarily even felt like that and as you said like the practical effects are stunning the cinematography is amazing as you'd expect it's thrilling the tension of the test bomb as you mentioned is sickening and the reality of the aftermath of um, the bombs being dropped is horrifying as well it's got career best performances from pretty much all the cast um and it really really is as good as everyone's saying it is essentially in a nutshell yeah. can't believe it no neither can i <laughs> if we loop back to the film's kind of approach to to telling this story so it's a as you said, it's a it's another biography of a powerful man. Emily Blunt had said that she felt Nolan had Trojan horsed a biopic into a thriller. So it's, mm-hmm. I guess it does feel like a biopic, but you don't see 
you don't see like too much of Oppenheimer's background, do you? Apart from the parts that feel very crucial, like the apple. No, I mean, you sort of see the genesis of his academic career, you know, his like scientific theoretical career. You don't see, you know, J. Robert Oppenheimer was born in New York. Like you don't see any of that, which I was really relieved about, really. Thank God. I think that that like description that Emily Blunt gives is actually a fairly succinct overview of what the the narrative is and i i quite like that because i don't need to know the man's upbringing i don't need to know the fraught relationship he may or may not have had with his parents you know like i just sort of want to know the point at which he became very interested in science and theory and that side of things and then how that then changed the trajectory of his life yeah and the lives of everyone else yeah um and nolan himself has said sort of his approach to the film was how the personal interacts with the historic and the geopolitical and he was sort of trying to find the thread that connected the quantum realm the vibration of energy and oppenheimer's own personal journey so you have this it's a really interesting choice of subject because as you say it's not just this is where this man grew up it's kind of here is a man who is very intriguing. He's got a very messy personal life mm-hmm. and his work, his brilliant work, not only has a huge impact on himself, but our society and politics, but also like the very atoms around us. It's kind yeah. of a, it's a very personal and a very broad, very large story, isn't it? It is. And it's tackling very weighty themes and it's this, you know, moral quandary and, and someone grappling with the consequences of their actions in a way that I don't think that they really had a sense of before putting those actions into play you know yeah that makes sense for sure yeah definitely um and i guess it's got this kind of this non-linear timeline so Mm -hmm. it's could be hard to follow but i think it does a great job of telling sort of oppenheimer's story and the larger story of sort of nuclear warfare you go through the kind of i guess it's through the key prisms in his life so we we begin with his security clearance hearing in 1954 then we go back to the key parts of his origin stories you say from cambridge to los alamos and then we have Strauss's Senate confirmation in 1959. And so it, it, it's using these sort of key moments. And it is a, a really interesting mixture of sort of, I think Nolan has called it subjective and, and objective storytelling. Mm-hmm. So you've got the colour timeline, which is Oppenheimer's subjective experience. And then the black and white, which is a slightly more objective view from, I guess, from Strauss's point. Well, it's not even from Strauss's point of view, but it's an objective point of view from the Senate. Yeah, I don't think it's solely from Strauss's point of view. I think it's just the more of the objective. I mean, those twin narratives, those two mm. narratives intertwining really worked for me, actually, the, the more that... I settled in with them as the film progressed. I feel like it does add a level of unreliability and sort of conflict, mm. i.e. who is genuinely the real Oppenheimer? What was happening at that moment? What were his actual motives? And mm. I sort of quite liked that back and forth. I mean, I guess the, 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 the key moments in the story are fairly accurate in terms of historic representation. But, you know, how what we know of Oppenheimer, what we thought Oppenheimer felt in terms of sort of whether it's guilt all of those kinds of things we'll never fully know so I think it gives you that yeah it kind of helps to that framing sort of helps us to interrogate his actions and his feelings and the viewpoint of others around him so I thought it gave quite a I don't know not even a it's not a well-rounded view but I think that the sort of storytelling structure acknowledges that it's not he's not an easy character to talk about and his his personal and professional decisions 
had huge ramifications for sort of months and years and lifetimes afterwards. And it's all, I don't know, I don't want to just say it's all a bit messy, but do you know what I mean? There's just, no, I there's do. so much you can tell. And I think it was a useful way of kind of using his subjective experience in particular was one way to kind of tell this story without getting bogged down in the like, having an answer to the is he, isn't he? How did he feel kind of? Yeah. Does that make sense? It does make sense. Yeah, I think the back and forth between those two kind of a subjective and objective perspectives, I do think alludes to the kind of complexity of the situation and also the complexity of who he was as a person. I think all of us are extremely complex for a variety of different reasons. And I think to to present a narrative in one very straight, linear way from one perspective I think just would have been slightly remiss so I do think that's what Christopher Nolan is attempting to do is sort of mimic that kind of the unknown entity and chaos of you know nuclear fusion and fission Mm. um as a mirroring of like actually how messy people are you know yeah absolutely what did you think of um we kind of we we see his marriage to Kitty and also his relationship with Jean. What did you think of the inclusion of those kind of aspects of his sex life and his sort of personal marital relationship? Um well, Christopher Nolan has a well discussed problem with writing female characters and this isn't helping, is it? This doesn't help at all. I think that he, there is always this sort of like trope in all of his films of there's always like a, tr- a slightly troubled wife. I think often of Marianne Cotillard in Inception. Yeah. You know, so, it, so it's just like a, a, a bubbling undercurrent in his films. I do think that the criticisms currently being thrown at this as being like a very male-centric film are slightly perplexing when you do think about how at this time these spe- Spaces were extremely male dominated. Unfortunately, that is historically, yeah, and accurate. that's not to say that that makes means it's okay because I'm not in any way condoning the omission of women from those scientific spaces. But I do, I think, if I have any criticisms of the film, um, and I do think it's simultaneously a bit of a masterpiece with flaws. To be honest, yeah. mm-hmm. um, I do think that the two primary female characters throughout, so. Kitty, played by Emily Blunt, and Jean Tatlock, played by Florence Pugh. They are very two-dimensional. Um, yeah. And they were good with what they were given to do, but what they were given to do was slightly lacking. I think I found a lot of the praise specifically for Emily Blunt. I think that's come from the fact that she has very little to do throughout the film because the women are just essentially there as ciphers, I think, mm-hmm. to show that like Oppenheimer was, one, absolute shagger, <laughs> top shagger and two just like messy his personal life was a mess you know yeah um, so i do think that with regards to emily blunt as kitty i think that she she was great but i do think a lot of the praise for her has come from a place that she has like so little to do and that kitty's so two-dimensional you don't really get any mm. insight into the fact that she this woman was like and a biologist herself she was a scientist you don't yeah. really learn any of that beyond like a throwaway comment that she gives herself about her being a biologist and now she's a housewife but she excels so much towards the end in a very specific scene primarily i think because she has something very interesting to do yeah and that that's that's the kind of saving moment for me with kitty's character is, as you say she does almost nothing and then she has this great scene at the end, which like Emily Blunt's able to really sort of flex her acting chops. And it's it's a brilliant, brilliant scene. But yeah, apart from that, I mean, Florence Pugh is like 
abs- I mean, Florence Pugh's boobs do some great acting in this, but like she's barely in it, is she? I find the rendering of these two specific women, given that they are and were real people, mm. to be particularly intriguing because I do feel like when Christopher Nolan is writing his scripts generally, he's not writing about real people. So there's like, mm. there's nothing there for him to go on. But I have found the Gene Tatlock and the, the Kitty Sider yeah. stuff interesting because these were women that had very rich lives you know Jean Tatlock was fascinating because she was an active member of the Communist Party at that particular mm-hmm. period and Florence Pugh is brilliant but you're sort of because you're sort of like not really given any real context or insight into their relationship other than how they first meet and then the fact they then conduct this slightly fraught affair mm-hmm. but then I also didn't want that I, I don't think i'm interested in that side of things in this in the context of this specific film it's difficult isn't it because they're kind of they're there to show that this is a strange man who had sort of in a way a strong sense of wrong and right but he never actually exercised that morality personally very mm-hmm. well so that is kind of the part that they play which feels very minimal but yeah also yeah how much time can you spend going into their backstories as well as and exploring that kind of aspect, as you say, as well as telling Oppenheimer's story. And I guess if those scenes are from his perspective... This is sort of the thing for me, really, is that like you, if we are being presented with a narrative that is specifically coming from Oppenheimer's POV at times, mm. then I think that actually is... is more so an indictment of of like what he thinks of women yeah and they are they play background characters don't they because for him they did play background characters that was my primary reading of this really is that actually that's just basically presenting you with the idea that like this is actually what he thought of women to be honest they Mm. were just like in the sidelines of very little importance to him beyond having sex yeah his work was the primary of primary importance you know and i felt like that did come across in the film there is a sort of yeah. slight kind of back and forth where there's a coldness towards the female characters, but also he's extremely consumed by them. Um, and another aspect that I was kind of particularly interested in and have been sort of reading conversations about in the aftermath of seeing this film was about kind of Jewish identity and mm-hmm. representation in the film, which has had negative and positive reactions. There's a really good article by Gabriella Geisinger for Digital Spy about mm-hmm. the kaleidoscope of Jewish identity in the film, which we'll share in the on in the show notes and on the WordPress on the website. Because I think that's just again a very interesting I've sort of picked up on it because there are quite a few sort of Jewish characters within the film and there is a kind of differing representations of sort of Jewishness and what Jewish identity means to different people including Oppenheimer himself mm-hmm. um, so I think that's also another really interesting sort of angle of the of the the story to explore definitely worth seeking out and having a read what did you think of the kind of cinematography and the filming I mean this is something that we know Nolan is particularly great at. His films are very much visual spectacles. I really love that he is once again working with Heute van Heutemer, the Dutch-Swedish cinematographer who recently worked with Jordan Peele on Nope, mm. but he is someone who has worked at length with Christopher Nolan and I do think that like the film itself looks gorgeous. There's a really nice balance of all the kind of scientific, technical, very metallic, you know, like all, all the sciencey in labby stuff, clinical yeah. that thing, juxtaposed with this incredible take on the American landscapes at that particular time. All of the stuff set in New Mexico 
um is just gorgeous yeah. you know like i think christopher nolan knows how to include wide landscapes and things in his films and i know that just will be coming from working some with someone like hoyt and it's interesting to think about nope actually because i think that that was something we discussed when we reviewed that film was actually how that captures the american landscapes it's such an integral part of that film isn't it but yeah i just think the film looks absolutely gorgeous i'd read about the forced perspective that they'd created in camera to create the trinity test itself with practical mm. it's crazy absolutely crazy? crazy there's no like com- computer generated effects in this it's kind of yeah re- use of real explosives i wonder how they did the kind of visualization of the atoms and the molecules and the energy mm. waves and the stars and the- i mean yeah those moments of sort of the inner workings of oppenheimer's mind which is sort of just very overwhelming they are aren't <laughs> as they? he's kind of lost in theory and then sort of you know i do think i really enjoy that juxtaposition between all, all three of those visuals really um i think that initially i was a bit taken back by those kind of oppenheimer's visions side of things but i think they're just brilliant they're just so visually gorgeous and i think it's it's hard sometimes i think to get your head around i mean i've got like I, i'm not a theoretical minded You're not person a quantum theory. i'm not a quantum physicist but i think that's one oh, of those wow. things isn't it is that quantum theory and everything to do with you know nuclear fission and everything like that it's very hard to actually beyond writing down the mathematics of it there is it's very hard to actually create a visual of that yeah how do you can't really show it big long sums um but i thought they were a very interesting attempt at rendering those and the other scene that sticks with me so much is the the scene where oppenheimer gives his speech at los alamos after the the bomb and it's that really horrific transformation of all these proud americans waving their flags and then the just the awful visualization of what would happen to these people that have been impacted by the nuclear bomb it's a full-on full-on horror show <laughs> yeah i mean it, it, it is it turns horror film for at least that scene it's mortifying it really really sticks with you i think the sound design in that scene in particular is just phenomenal oh so much yeah the sound design and the music in this film is stunning what do you think of the the i mean the performances are it's such a huge such a huge cast we can't even go through all of them the the cast when it was sort of the casting process i think was very secretive and um a lot of the actors didn't know which role they were going to play until they signed on um and then we just had this huge spiraling list of people it's just everywhere you turn there's someone that you recognize um what did you think of some of the what were some of the key performances for you i do think it's funny that at this stage it's fa- is it fair to say that like who wasn't in this film oh god yeah between that and barbie i know last year it was quite funny wasn't it we'd get tweets mentioning how someone else was added to the cast of oppenheimer it's like i've forgotten who is in this now there's just <laughs> so many people i did go on wikipedia and like the the cast list on this is just you have to keep scrolling because it like literally lists every single actor in the film obviously and then who their actual historical counterpart is yeah and many of these people are only really on screen for like 10 minutes max did you have to sometimes go like were they in that oh yeah i guess yeah, they were I did. there were quite a few people i was like oh oh yeah no he was there i just it wasn't like i just sort of imagined them to be present I think that with regards to the casting of it, I think I really enjoyed the kind of like gang coming together aspect of it when he was, Oppenheimer was assembling his team because it was very much like people would appear on screen and I'd be like, oh, I'd completely forgotten that they were going to be in this. Gustav Skarsgård's in this. (laughs) Yeah, like, oh, you're in it. Okay. So yeah, with regards to the casting performances, um, I, I mean, Killian's like God tier. 
you know it's probably his, is it his best performance it's one of his best i think he's he's so perfect for playing a man who is utterly haunted by the consequence of his actions it's those blue eyes <laughs> it, genuinely though but it makes me think a lot about the danny boyle film sunshine mm. where he's also playing a similarly kind of a, a scientist haunted by the horrors mm. of the world and yeah, i think he's just great for it you know like he just yeah. has such an an emotionally expressive face um, he does look like he's seen a ghost like 95% of the time. <laughs> very pale. Very pale, very, very pallid. Drawn. Great bone structure. Yeah. Just fascinating. So like I said, the, the ensemble cast here is just phenomenal. But like the real standouts for me were Robert Downey Jr. playing Louis Strauss. I just think it's fucking incredible to see him back in a role that isn't Marvel-centered. It just reminds me of like how fucking good he can be. Yeah. Yeah, it's been a while. It's it's been a while, and it's it's really re- a relief to be honest to see that he's still got it. Um, Josh Hartnett, <laughs> let's get him in more things. Oh, we haven't seen him in so long. He's brilliant. He's really brilliant. It just proves to me that if you give him a good script, I mean, the man's been working nonstop since the nineties, so like mm. fair play. But like when you actually give him something interesting to do, he just radiates yeah. the energy of like a seventies character actor. Like I think I flippantly tweeted after seeing this film, but I was like, I just feel like in the future we should just give any role that is presented to Brad Pitt. We should just give Josh Hartnett a go because yeah. there was this sort of strange kind of like Brad Pitty energy. And I mean that as a sincere compliment, genuinely. I think it was just making me think a lot about Ocean's Eleven, which is a very funny comparison to make. But he just has the swagger of Brad Pitt in Ocean's Eleven in that he's like second in command and he has to kind of keep Oppenheimer mm. in check a little bit. Yeah. Um, he was fucking great. It's like Brad Pitt meets Brendan Fraser, isn't it? Yes, yes. <laughs> Um, I'm extremely pro Benny Safdie, so I adored him. He's a great actor. Edward Teller. I know this has been quite polarizing. I think a lot of people do not like Benny Safdie as an actor, but I think he was brilliant in this. Um, David Crumholtz as Isidore Mm. Isaac Rabi. I just, Crumholtz. What a legend. Like, <laughs> it's so funny to me that, like, this sort of guy who's been acting since he was a kid, like, in my head, he just exists solely as, you know, his character in 10 Things I Hate About You. But I just love it when he pops up. And he was I know. so good in this. Absolutely brilliant in this. He's so good. He's got this almost, like, concern maternal... <laughs> instinct as well i saw someone online compare him in this film to alfred molina and i was like yeah it does actually make sense he will end up doing a lot of like molina roles in the the future i think and as much as i laughed hysterically when he appeared because i had somehow forgotten he was in this film i just think matt damon was very good you know (laughs) matt damon was very good i just think he inherently makes me giggle when he turns up because i just i can't really take him seriously anymore but he's good he is good he's a good actor um yeah, they're all great. I think, regrettably, Casey Affleck gave a very memorable performance. He was harrowing as Boris Pash. Utterly, utterly harrowing. Someone had tweeted, Casey Affleck in Oppenheimer, scary. And then someone else had quote tweeted that and said, wildly unsettling segment, feels like the devil himself wandered into the movie for about three minutes. Yes. And I think that's such an accurate description of when he popped up. Just heard his like unsettling voice and then see him pop up and makes your skin crawl. And when will, um, I'm going to butcher this, David, is it Das Malchin? 
Dusmal- I say Dusmalchian, yeah. Yeah, when will David Dusmalchian be allowed to play someone nice? But do you not think that he's so inherently creepy that he does it so well? I just feel really bad. We watched Boston Strangler the other night because of lack of anything else to do. And I was like, of course you're cast in this as someone awful. The poor guy. I just think of him always in um, Denis Venu's Prisoners. Oh my God. He's in um, The Boogeyman. Uh, not, he doesn't play a bad character in that, yeah. but just a very, very tortured character. Just, I mean, he's a brilliant, brilliant actor, but someone give that man a comedy. I will say that he's in Ant-Man in a comedic <laughs> oh, okay. role and it just does, it just seems off. See, that bypassed me, unsurprisingly. Yeah, I mean, you're not missing out, but yeah, he's uh, he's just great, isn't he? He's so slithery, slimy. He's slithery, slithery man, yeah. Um, and of course, we talked about Emily Blunt as Kitty Oppenheimer, who does absolutely flatten everyone in that clearance hearing it's hilarious and then a very underutilized Florence Pugh yeah I think she definitely is underused to be honest yeah is there anything else you want to talk about I think there are two main points I would just briefly like to address um I think you've mentioned briefly the score I think it's utterly perfect it's um Ludwig Göransson who also scored Tenet and has also worked on The Mandalorian and I also forget that he's a long-time collaborator of Ryan Coogler's his score for this is just absolutely phenomenal. I've listened to it a few times this week it's when gorgeous, I've been doing very bits at work and it's just absolutely beautiful. There was a quote I found where it says that Nolan had advised him to use the violin for Oppenheimer's central theme in the film, with Goranson remarking that he had felt that it could go from the most romantic, beautiful tone in a split second to neurotic and heart-wrenching mm. horror sounds, which it does. I think it's such a powerful score and I think it matches the sort of film so brilliantly and the other thing as well is i think there's been lots of discussion about the film's omission of the actual visual aftermath of nagasaki and hiroshima in particular this is what i was gonna ask actually is whether you felt that it showed the full extent of the horror i think the way that it presents the horror of those particular two strikes is that from my perspective anyway it felt that the one of the big issues that the film presents to you is everyone's disconnection from the Mm. actual effect and aftermath of what they were creating and i think that the stance of not showing that really highlights how that was all just collateral damage for those in charge it feels Mm. extremely clinical at times and i think that is the point and i think of that scene in the war room where they're they've got that list of locations in japan that they want to try and hit and one of the men in charge just simply Simply strikes Kyoto off the list because he and his wife honeymooned there. That's the kind of tell-all moment, really, isn't it? I think that's the point of the hot. That's the, that's yeah. the sheer horror of it. That in itself was horrific to witness, and I and I do understand why people feel like there should have been some visual rendering of it. But you, mm. there is a scene where there are people that are looking at slides in a classroom of things from mm. Nagasaki and Hiroshima but you don't see it and you all you see is the horror on their face there is this like creeping it's that creeping sense isn't it and especially for Oppenheimer that what he was doing was such a sort of it was theory into practice and then it turned into you know his his understanding of what he'd done was quite delayed and then he starts to be sort of haunted doesn't he by these yeah. creeping visualizations these hallucinations and then yeah, he sees, he starts to sort of see the full extent of what this has caused over the, I can't remember what the figures were for, you know, on the day, but then actually the weeks and the months and the years afterwards. Yeah. And it is, it feels like you're drip fed these, these parts, which is kind of how he, 
I don't know, again, it's that subjective reality, isn't it? The yeah. kind of the fact that none of them were paying attention to like the, the horrific reality of what was happening. They're all so focused on the fact that it could be them if it wasn't if they didn't do it first, they would be the ones to suffer Absolutely. at the hands of someone else whether that was true or not. Yeah. We're told quite a few times we've basically won the war. Why are we yeah. still doing this? Yeah. And I think that's the that's the point for me as well, is that you do see that he suddenly becomes acutely aware of actually what he's created and what he's done and what the horror he's unleashed on the world. And he's carrying the guilt of that. Um, and he is grappling with that. And I don't think that by seeing those... And I think to this point as well, I think many of us have seen all of those photos. Mm. And it's like, I don't think that by inserting those into the film, you're really going to add anything to it other than very much asserting that actually this is an extremely horrific thing that shouldn't have taken place. You know, I don't think by not showing it that Christopher Nolan's going like, it's fine. I don't think that's... A, that's. I would say it's very much the opposite and it exactly. does serve as a cautionary tale. And it shows that, you know, the second that Oppenheimer is basically ghosted by the yeah. military like why yeah. won't they call me it's like yeah you've done your job they don't care this is the thing it's that all of these scientists were and a lot of them had come over from europe before the war because they knew they were at risk and america had offered them safe place because of their scientific talent all of their you know abilities were essentially manipulated by the military for mm. for their gain and then the minute they've given them this their research their findings they're cast aside yeah and that's horrific too you know well, I'm glad we both really enjoyed I say really enjoyed it. Enjoyed doesn't feel like the right word, does it? But I thought it was, it's just a brilliant film. I, I think, think it all comes together so well. I think it's a really fascinating piece of storytelling. And I think it's probably going to clear up at the Oscars. So if they happen. So in our own great piece of counter-programming, we're now going to talk about Barbie. This is the best day ever. It is the best day ever. And so is yesterday. And so is tomorrow. And every day from now until forever. Yeah! You guys ever think about dying? Barbie is a 2023 American fantasy comedy film directed by Greta Gerwig, who also co-wrote the script with her partner and frequent collaborator Noah Baumbach. It's based, of course, on the Barbie fashion dolls created by Mattel. And it's the first live action Barbie film after multiple computer animated direct-to-video and streaming tv films the film itself has a long long history not just because it's about the 64 year old doll in question a live action barbie film was initially announced in september of 2009 by universal with development beginning almost five years later in 2014 when sony acquired the film rights there were then multiple writer director and casting changes including the casting of amy schumer and then anne hathaway as barbie and then in October 2018 the rights were transferred to Warner Brothers. Margot Robbie was then cast in 2019 and in 2021 during the pandemic Greta Gerwig was announced as director and co-writer with Noah Baumbach. The rest of the cast were announced in early 2022 and filming began and took place between March to June of last year. The film premiered in Los Angeles on the 9th of July and was then theatrically released in the US and the UK on July 21st. To date, it has grossed over $549 million worldwide, becoming the eighth highest grossest film of 2023. So a brief synopsis, the film follows Barbie, played by Margot Robbie, and Ken played by Ryan Gosling, on a journey of self-discovery following an unexpected existential crisis. It features an ensemble cast, including America Ferrara, Kate McKinnon, Issa Rae, Rhea Perlman and Will Ferrell, amongst many, many others I'm sure we will discuss. So, first off, 
What were your expectations heading into the film? And what is our collective relationship to uh, Greta Gerwig? To Barbie. Um, I can't believe we're going in depth on a Barbie film, to Isn't be honest. is it funny? It is hilarious to me. Um, we're obviously big Greta fans. We've spoken, I think, about Little Women and Lady Bird on this podcast in the past. Those are both up there as some of the most enjoyable films for me in the past few years. And Greta's this kind of indie hero turned big box office draw with a lot of kind of, I don't know, a lot of heart and a lot of wit and a lot of insight, especially for her female characters. And yet the Barbie announcement did feel a little left field. Mm, Didn't it? (laughs) Yes, because of the product, I guess. And I really couldn't for so long, and I know I verbalised this to you, I could not work out what the audience and the tone for this film would be. Initially, I was like, is she making a kid's film? Or is this like a satirical adult film? Is it going to be bashing the consumerism of Barbie? Or is it a, yeah, straight down the line kind of kids? Even before we knew it was sort of knew the details, I just, I, I couldn't get a grasp on what this would be like, especially knowing Greta's sort of filmography and sort of writing in the past. And we've got to see her a little bit more in a bigger budget environment with Little Women, which I think was around sort of 40 mil budget mark. But this is like astronomical. This is 150 mil. And even with Greta and Noah combined, I was kind of like, how did Warner Brothers agree to this? It just seemed like quite a big leap for such a big product. It's quite a pivot, isn't it? It's quite a pivot. And it it absolutely makes sense now. And it's amazing to hear that Margot Robbie's production company, Lucky Chap, they were the ones that entered the picture after um, Robbie pitched the film. And she was the one that approached Greta and gave Greta and Noah sort of full writing creative control. So that's really, really cool. But I was definitely sceptical and a bit baffled by this up until the first trailer and that amazing Space Odyssey parody we had, which, yeah, really made me feel, I don't know, a bit more relaxed about the whole thing. I just really couldn't work out what this was going to be. And I felt like it could be a horrible disaster or just quite naff. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think I was like simultaneously hyped and also incredibly sceptical for all the reasons you've outlined. I really was baffled as to why Greta wanted to follow up Little Women with this. With Barbie. Like it, it just felt like such a strange one too. Um, I mean, we are huge Greta fans. Uh, we met her once. Don't know if we ever mentioned that. Yeah, shoulder bars to a few people to get there. Sorry. Um, and I've really genuinely adored seeing her transition from acting into directing. I think she is a very, very genuinely very good director. And I think consequently, I think I inevitably expect a lot from her, which I think hence my apprehension that Barbie would actually be good or not. You know, like I think I have an unfair probably level of expectation based on the things that she has directed prior and the films that she's been in before this as well. Her films have so much humanity to them. Mm. And I think I just was unsure about how she would bring that level of humanity to a product, essentially, like Barbie. You know, all that there's positives and negatives connotations with something like Barbie, but it is a, a Mattel toy. And I just wasn't sure how she could bring those things that we love her so much for 
to the table. Exactly, yeah. But then the, when we saw the kind of trailers and then we'd seen the cast and it became this kind of event cinema and we knew that it was sort of with the Barbenheimer and the, you know, everyone getting really excited to see it and wearing costumes, it did become this big event. And I found myself, when we went into the cinema, I was like really, really excited in my seat, which I haven't felt for a film in a while. And I think that we'll, we'll talk about general reactions. I laughed a lot, but I think I, I laughed even more because actually I already felt a lot of warmth and excitement and good nature towards this film even before it started. Does that make sense? I was kind of like, wow, I'm so excited for everyone to have a good time. I think I was just like in desperate need to finally see this because I felt like, I feel like I'd seen the trailer so, so many times. So many times. Not even actually convinced I saw the trailer for Oppenheimer more than once, to be honest. No. But it's so funny that by comparison, I feel like I've seen the trailer for Barbie both in the cinema and also on television as well. I feel like it was being rammed down my throat. The marketing has been huge. Yeah, and I do feel a little bit like I had reached a point where I was like I actually just need to see this film because I'm slightly concerned that I'm going to flip back round and then just feel like I just can't <laughs> I find this intolerable because I just yeah it's the danger sometimes I think of trailers when they kind of like take things out of context and I couldn't really get a sense of what the tone was going to be and that subsequently was making me a little bit concerned yeah it just wasn't going to work so yes all of that aside General reactions. How did you feel when we finally got around to seeing it? I cannot believe what they've managed to pull off with this film. It is like lightning in a bottle mm-hmm. and like the talent behind it and the tone and the overall sort of thematic approach, the production and the set design, the casting and the writing and the music, like the songs. It's just, it's so much fun. And from the very opening, it's sort of colourful and musical and funny but is also very thoughtful and heartfelt in the way that I wanted a Greta Gerwig film to be. Mm-hmm. And I'm really pleased that I think one of my main concerns, and I know we discussed this before, was whether it was, I don't know, I feel like it's a film that interrogates a pop culture figure like Barbie from all sides, the good and the bad, and it doesn't try and arrive at a conclusion about what these toys mean or what women should be or how we should be feeling about the world around us. It's not landing on either side. And I I thought it juggled, again, that kind of our mess, it's more messy feelings, isn't it? It's mm-hmm. kind of the messiness of a figure like Barbie and of like the power structures around us and the way that women feel they should look and act and be. It's all very, very nuanced and very messy. And I felt like this film really tackled that in a really open and funny way. And I loved being back in Margot Robbie's camp after... I mean, she was great in Babylon, but I did not like Babylon. No. And she's this huge force in the industry now, isn't she? She's like a talented actress and she's a savvy businesswoman who's doing a lot of good for the industry. And I'd love to read about that. The ensemble cast is a joy. The comedy is really on point. I cried like an absolute baby at the end. And I'm really glad that the... You know, the film itself was great. And then I actually really enjoyed the event of it all and the internet discourse and the hype and the costumes and people having like noticeably a really great time around us. Like it didn't matter if people were whooping and shouting and like laughing like absolute lunatics in the cinema. It just it felt very complimentary. It was like the best kind of interactive cinema, you know? Yes, that's the kind of interactive that is allowed. It's not having conversations it's the etiquette that's allowed 
I'd say that said, it's not like a five out of five for me. I think there's like a couple of things that maybe didn't work quite as well. But for the amount of scepticism I had and just the the unknowingness of it all, I just did. I could not work out what this film was going to be and what it was going to try and say. And I think it's come across actually very strongly and I really, really enjoyed it. Yeah, there'd been much discussion in advance of this with regards to Barbenheimer as a concept about like what the right way round was to see these two films as a mm. double bill. Um, and I am really pleased that we pumped for seeing Oppenheimer first and then following up with Barbie. And I think the films share a lot of interesting ideas about the nature of existential dread. Yeah. But I think that actually this was such a nice counterpoint to Oppenheimer just visually you know totally (laughs) yeah completely I think it's a really good balance of comedy and sentimental moments I had a great time with it I think that there is some genuinely perfect casting in this film even the actors who briefly make an appearance make perfect sense in the context of this film i find in particular it's so delightful that emma mackie is someone who we've seen in things like sex education before and one of the things that always has been thrown at her since she's sort of become slightly more prominent in the cultural consciousness is that she looks an awful lot like margot robbie she looks like margot robbie so to cast her in this film as a barbie um, and obviously the, all of the Barbies are completely different, but it's just a sort of very canny piece of casting there. And I think, you know, there are little things like that that I think are absolutely brilliant. It looks absolutely gorgeous. I do find it utterly hysterical that Rodrigo Prieto, who's the cinematographer on this film, um, the two films that he has coming out this year are this, Barbie, and then also Martin Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon. What a one-two, eh? Greta chose extremely well there. I think that this is like genuinely the role that Margot Robbie was seemingly born to play. Oh my God, Can I know. And it's such a layered role. <laughs> and she's playing Barbie, but there's so much going on. Yeah, she that she just sort of manages to balance this like absolutely kind of like slight doll-like quality, like but like emotionally, but then also physically. The physical acting of this is There's a lot of very wild. physical comedy that she yeah. specifically does that I think is brilliant. And then also just Ryan Gosling forever. Like, as a lifelong Ryan Gosling hardcore fan, it's just delightful to have him being silly in a film again. And I think that you're right with regards to kind of the initial rating of this. I think our friend Claire, I think, really captured it very well in her kind of review of it, where she said star rating doesn't even matter. I had a 10 out of 10 time. And I think that's absolutely true for me, to be honest. Yeah, I think enjoyment factor is like out of the window and I haven't enjoyed myself at a film as much as that for such a long time such a long time so let's maybe think about kind of things that we've already raised like the writing the tone the genre of it I do think and I know we've discussed this in amongst ourselves as well I find like who is this film for still a bit open isn't it it's such Mm. a fascinating it's such a fascinating film and I I think it's I mean, it's an adult, it is an adult film. You know what I worried about? And I, it, it wouldn't have happened, but you know, where you get like very adult reimaginings of kids' content, like, I don't know, not sweary teddy bears, but do you know what I mean? Just like yes. adult children's properties in a very, like very adult content. This is the kind of film that you could take 
a young person too, but they'll probably just be bored if they can't yes. if they can't just enjoy the um the visuals of it. It is a it is a tonally out there film, and I think it's I love that reading the kind of process and the inspiration for Goig and Baumbach who had this very sort of creative, free, open process between them and are, you know, they're used to working together very well and they had a lot of creative freedom. It was absolutely killing me reading about the influences and inspiration because you obviously have the kind of the Technicolor musical inspiration and uh-huh. Gerwig was drawing from her own like personal relationship to playing with Barbies or not being allowed to play with Barbies as it were. But she <laughs> but was also just reading on Wikipedia about the film treatment consisting of an abstract poem on Barbie influenced by the Apostles' Creed. That's the most Greta shit ever. Honestly, and like ref- she like referenced Milton's Paradise Lost as a... And it's kind of this... Uh, is a film that very much comes from both a, an intellectual and an emotional standpoint. Yeah, I mean, there's there's another podcast that I listen to. They often talk about the concept of like director bullshit, which mm. is like when someone is doing promo for a film or is talking about their film. Um, and there, it, this this term often gets applied to things like Marvel. So you have a director yeah. that's talking about their... I think it basically came up because I think the Russo brothers, when they were talking about Captain America and the Winter Soldier, yeah. they were citing like loads of like 70s like spy and espionage <laughs> films as being like reference points for it, which yeah. is absolutely fine. But then you watch the film and you're like, yeah, I guess to a point, but not really because it's about superheroes running around smashing shit. Um, yeah. And I say that as someone who adores that film. But I do find, I have found a lot of when I've been reading sort of things that Greta has said or the films that have been cited in reference, there has been a little bit of that where I just sort of go like, yeah, I mean, I guess, but then also... I kind of, yeah, but I kind of get it at the same point though, because she's... Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think that genre-wise, the film itself does owe a lot to things like Wizard of Oz, MGM musicals, Grease, stuff like that. And that does like very visually and tonally come through for sure mm. um but i do think it's interesting that you mention the kind of like intellectualization oh, it's just, of this it is it is that kind of it's just very funny isn't it and it's it feels like a very it does feel like a Gerwig thing but also it's just a funny treatment of this kind of film but it is a it's a film that draws on does draw on quite a broad range of reference points it's kind of the history of sort of literature and pop culture and our understanding of consumerism and sort of power structures as well as personal experiences as you know from the cast and crew of being a young girl so it kind of I don't know how you'd even summarize it really but well I think that's what I found the difficulty is that I'm sort of genuinely perplexed as to who it's for we saw so many kids at the cinema dressed up for barbie when we saw oppenheimer in the morning yeah but they felt so young and i did i wonder whether they were i mean maybe they will still enjoy it on a a, on a sort of superficial level well the thing that i thought of a lot actually is that there's a lot of innuendo in this and it reminded me at times of the experience of like re-watching Toy Story for example as mm. an adult and then realising that that film has so many jokes baked into it that had been included primarily for the benefit of the accompanying adults mm. who were taking the kids and it's only when you get older that you realise that because I think when you're a kid you're completely oblivious to it and I think it's very funny and very slapstick at times and I think that is something that like kids 
probably would appreciate and obviously it relies heavily on the incredibly maximalist set and set design to create Barbie land and I think that's obviously all things that would like genuinely appeal to children um, but then on the flip side of that the script does feel very Bambach and Gerwig at times it's kind of exactly what you'd expect yeah and it sort of takes I guess what it's doing is it's taking you know the elements that you would expect from a Barbie movie mm-hmm. like the highly artificial environment and the the sort of packed comedy script and the sort of te- the, you know the wonderful musical scenes and then you're infiltrating it with all these kind of existentialist questions cutting takes on being a millennial heartfelt speeches it's purposefully and knowingly silly in that regard i think especially when you think about the fact that barbie land is supposed to be this great like utopia like that is purposefully positioned for laughs because it's completely opposed to what the reality of what it's like to be a woman in the real world you know yeah it's reaffirming and subversive at the same time it's sort of encapsulates how conflicted I think we all feel about even Barbie as an impossible beauty standard or Barbie as an empowering figure or you know as you say how messy and beautiful and exhausting it is to be sort of a woman and a human Mm -hmm. but I love the idea of there were lots of people online saying that you know they took it can be enjoyed on different levels and there were younger viewers coming out and going like mum what is patriarchy or like what is a gynecologist for so it kind of without being like Ben Shapiro's vision of like, this is an angry feminist movie. It was kind of mm. making all those points, but in a, like a really funny, lighthearted, heartfelt kind of way. Yeah, definitely. I think that like, I really enjoyed that air of hyper reality that kind of presents those themes in a kind of otherworldly element. I mean, I'd read that Greta had spoke with Peter Weir, who directed The Truman Show, which like in retrospect makes perfect sense yeah. because it's like this idea of like someone who doesn't know that their life is a construct and then crumbles accordingly and is grappling with like the actual reality of the real world. And I think it does balance that, those two things very well. In the same way that Emily Blunt called Oppenheimer like a Trojan horse film, this kind mm-hmm. of feels like a Trojan horse film too. And if it had been, if it had been a straight kids movie or a Gerwig Baumbach quirky indie comedy, I don't yeah. think either would have had the same appeal. And I think they've sort of written the sort of themes and observations we love them for into like a mainstream film that hopefully will allow people to take away some level of message as well as having a good time. Absolutely. Um, So we've kind of touched upon the production and craft side of things, but what did you make of the sort of visual side of Barbie and the kind of hyper-reality versus reality of Barbie land and the real world in the film. I just really enjoyed spending time thinking about this because the artificiality of Barbie is something that I probably, you know, we take for granted, don't we? It's a toy. Um, And you had Sarah Greenwood and Katie Spencer serving as sort of set designer and decorator on this. And I just have loved really thinking about the level of detail and the scale of the production in Barbie land in particular and how that's, but it's just absolutely off the scale. And it's all very... Um, it's all very tangible. Again, it's not a, you know, CGI generated environment. It's super tangible. Even though they were saying the other day about the, the giant legs at the beginning in the space odyssey scene, odyssey scene, how they're, you know, they were real and they were made so that the young kids could go and sort of tangibly touch them and be around them. It's like very tactile. Yeah. That's something I've thought about a lot. Actually, having read a few interviews with, uh, Sarah Greenwood and Katie Spencer, they'd sort of said about how, they worked out that 
Barbie's size to the ratio of her surroundings mm. so that everything is 23% smaller than its real life counterpart which is why you know for example when like Barbie is like in the shower the yeah. roof is very, the ceiling is very low and things like that and then little things like there are no stairs because Barbie's always moved around by the person playing with her there's mm. no fire there's no water and the, I don't know if you've seen that video of the construction of the journey scene with the boats and the waves it's all practical with yeah it's all like literal set pieces Yeah, and I think you get a sense of that when you're watching it. Like it felt very obvious to me that these were all very physical sets on a huge soundstage. Yeah, and to that end, it does actually remind me of those old studio films that Greta has referenced that had a heavy reliance on practical effects. Yeah, the kind of the Technicolor musicals and the sort of the authentic artificiality or whatever it is. But yeah, you're right. It's kind of it's the sort of thing that in a like a previous CGI generated Barbie film you would not pay attention to and you would passively take for granted and then as soon as it's like actually sort of grounded in like live action it's kind of like wow yeah like the perspectives on everything and like the size and the scale is really it's funny isn't it it's really I found it really interesting this week to think a lot about the budgets that this had and, and that Oppenheimer had to be honest because I think there was a stat flying around that the Flash DC's most recent installment in their kind of cinematic universe like that cost more than Oppenheimer and Barbie did <laughs> that's insane it looks like crap you know I can't believe in a way I couldn't be- well I can believe but I almost couldn't believe that Oppenheimer cost less than Barbie to make <laughs> It's like, sorry, you were letting off actual bombs. Um, the other thing I was going to mention as well is just that the costuming in this film is oh. absolutely insane. Jacqueline Duran, who also worked with Greta on Little Women, had like a very practical approach to creating Barbie's yes. wardrobe, I read. Which is true, right? You buy the Barbie. Barbie always, Barbie dresses practically. What she talks a lot about the how what one of Barbie's defining characteristics is that what she wears is rela- directly related to where she is going and what she is doing. Mm-hmm. So, for example, if you have like a party Barbie, she has a party dress on. If you buy like a scientist Barbie, she'll be wearing a dress with like a scientist jacket on. You yes. know, li- like little things like that. And I think that was very much reflected in the Barbies in the film. Yeah, and you had the adaptations of sort of all the classic outfits as well. Mm-hmm. And during the press tour, you could kind of, I don't if if you had played with Barbie as a kid, you're like, oh yeah, I had the Barbie with that outfit. Yeah. Which I really loved as sort of little homages as well. I think they did with regards to the costuming and also the marketing alongside it and particular Margot Robbie's press tour, like you just said, they went into the archives and they were like beat for beat, side by side, matches of like very iconic Barbie. It's brilliant. It's just very, very clever and very well executed. So on the performances front, we've obviously mentioned Margot Robbie, but were there any other standouts um, in this for you or anyone else that you particularly loved? Again, like Oppenheimer, it's a huge ensemble cast. It's so funny. I know that, and we'll talk, I will talk about Ken. I know everyone's talking about Ken and that sort of, I think Ryan Gosling's performance as Ken was the thing that people were talking about having left the film. And that was certainly coming up just before we saw it. Mm. But Margot Robbie as Barbie, as you said, is like, she's the absolute heart of this movie. She's just brilliant. Her physical performance, the comic timing, she's absolutely absolutely beautiful mm-hmm. and this kind of journey of self-discovery that she goes on that shows that she is you know more than Barbie and Barbie land and more than Barbie in the real world it's just I think she's absolutely the standout and she's wonderful when she's with Ken as yeah. well and those two as a pairing is just fantastic and Ryan Gosling's kind of the comedic heart of the film isn't he he is the 
he's the hilarious figure, really. I just find it funny that in the build-up to this, there was like some sort of like weird rumblings online that like, why has Ryan Gosling been cast in this? I think that was like largely coming from like Gen Z, who don't really understand him conceptually. Yeah. But it's like the role that he was born to play. Like he's so somehow it really is like you know not just in terms of like physicality, but as you say, like the comedy and he is fucking Ken in this, and it's a it's like a very specific type of Ken that we yeah. haven't seen before. And I loved the way he interacted with Barbie and the fact that Barbie just like didn't notice him. It wasn't that she was. She wasn't even putting him down. She just forgot he was there all the time. Yeah. And then he also goes on this. The bit I really didn't expect was the fact that he also goes on a journey of self-discovery mm-hmm. and finds that value in himself, yeah. which was something that they didn't necessarily need to do because this is a film about Barbie. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's something that like I didn't need. I didn't need like an analysis of like what Ken's purpose is and no. like what Ken's function is alongside Barbie and like who is Ken without Barbie. Yeah. Um, but I think that it's a testament to how good he is in that role that he like makes it extremely worthwhile. Yes, absolutely. And still gets his own sense of sort of self-worth and discovery by the end. So he's still valuable. It's also just a very funny plot line. He's hilarious. The whole patriarchy and the horse that so good so good um i really liked america ferrera as gloria and ariana greenblatt as sasha they're kind of the really grounding presence i loved their sort of mother-daughter relationship and the fact that this was more gloria's story than sasha's and she sort of has to find herself too as a mum and a woman and she gives that really great gone girl speech that everyone loves um which was very effective yeah loved kate mckinnon as weird barbie made me laugh off the bat as soon as she appeared and I was like wow it's the Barbie we all cut the hair off it's amazing and I love that idea of kind of she undergoes that transformation when Barbie returns to Barbie land and it's that idea of what an empowered feminist Barbie would look like like she effectively looks like tank girl yeah (laughs) thought that was hilarious um I really like Rhea Perlman as the spirit of sort of Ruth Handler like the co-founder of Mattel that made me bawl my eyes out this kind of maternal godlike presence and I loved all the I loved all the Barbies the most. The cast is great here, and I think it's a very interesting sort of thing to just have this like roster of Barbies. They were and they were all brilliant. They were all hilarious and gorgeous and charming. And I loved the stuff the time we spent with all of them. Um I liked the Kens as well, but the Barbies really kind of knocked it out of the park for me. Um, was there anyone else for you? Steph, what did you think of Will Ferrell? <laughs> right. So I Okay, so it's a well documented point that uh, I'm not great with some comedy and I am famously not a Will Ferrell fan. I'm really sorry. I know I'm the only person on the planet who feels that way. And I did laugh during this film. I will argue that I think sometimes I was good natured laughing. I think I laughed mm-hmm. a bit at stuff. You don't believe me. No. I laughed a bit at stuff that I probably wouldn't always laugh at because I was having a good time. He was fine. I... Just, I didn't really care about him as the CEO of Mattel. Sorry. I was going to say, actually, this does lead us really nicely into sort of like the themes and messaging side of the film. I think if I have some criticisms of this film, it's that it was really hard to not dwell upon the brand marketing product placement of it all, which is inevitable. And I do understand that like, if you're going to be talking about Barbie specifically as a doll in the context of you are a thing that is played with by children whose parents have bought them for you, which is what the film directly does address. 
it's inevitable. But I do think that it's not like the film can really be a critique of capitalism or corporate America when essentially you know that it's been signed off by the company. Um, I think it does manage to balance that while being vaguely subversive at times, but it also is just, for me, a thing I've thought about a lot this week with regards to the particularly the rendering of Mattel in the film is that is it not just a knowing attempt by a brand to kind of overhaul their reputation for a contemporary audience? And I think that by putting someone like Will Ferrell in that position as like CEO of Mattel, it's just an interesting choice. I think ideally they would have, as you say, that entire sort of Mattel board would have been played straighter instead of being quite funny and charming. And I think it's been well documented that Mattel were a bit nervous about their portrayal in this film and that Robbie had really sort of gone to bat for Greta and bowed back and sort of defended their position. But they also probably definitely softened the approach Mm -hmm. to make sure it went through the door. And I guess... I don't know. On the one hand, I'm like that. I guess that's just what you have to do when you're tackling a film like this. But it is, at the same time, it's a film that's going to make a shitload of money for Mattel. And um, I think they came off quite favourably in this. It's not a film that actually spends a lot of time sort of ruminating on the ideals, ideas of consumerism and capitalism, really. They've gone down the patriarchy angle, haven't they? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I do sort of feel like on the kind of like themes and messaging side of stuff, I don't think it necessarily was a film that I needed to go to to get any kind of like nuanced take on the landscape of the world. And I do, I think that it is where things sort of fall a little bit flat for me. Mm. I do understand the choice and need to give it like a feminist take and I'm really glad that they did it. Um, But I do think that the minute you start to unpack or noodle around with its politics and it does fall flat a little bit. But I also think it's not necessarily the point of the film. So it's fine that it's like a bit like feminism 101 like that's fine for me yeah and I think that's where it will hopefully have an effect for younger audiences yeah exactly I think for me the bits that I found most effective weren't the empowering speeches about being a woman in America today but it was actually this idea of sort of Barbie finding her humanity it was the smaller scenes like Barbie sitting on the bench with the older lady. Yep. The extremely saccharine montage scene with Billie Eilish at the end. But I don't know, it was the bits that made me reflect on the messiness and beauty of humanity rather than just the role of women. I don't know, does that... I haven't articulated that very well, but there was something about accepting how difficult and complex things can be and like taking that moment to breathe and to I don't know it was that it was that moment of breath and that moment of pause they have to kind of acknowledge what is beautiful and empowering and amazing about women and and the people around us and the world around us that I I did quite appreciate yeah I completely agree I've just found the kind of like reaction to this element of the film just to be really interesting and I think it's probably ultimately about what you want from a film and it's also about what your level of expectation is and I think that you know that's something I mentioned at the beginning of this is that like I did I do expect a lot from Greta and I do think that she is known for kind of having created films that are about what it is like to be a girl woman Mm. in the world at varying stages of your life so it seems like a natural successor in that regard I feel like it's probably the most we were going to get from from a Mattel approved Barbie film. <laughs> yeah, completely. And it's also not necessarily what I wanted from this film. Like I don't ultimately mm. know what I wanted from it, but it's not necessarily that I think that I was going to it, you know, needing like a thesis on like what Barbie's representation of womanhood has done to the mm. landscape of femininity in the modern world because I think it touches on that in a in a way to like briefly acknowledge it, but I didn't need like a I just didn't need like a, a, a deep-seated analysis like that's no. not what that film about. Yeah, I think that would have been the smaller 
Greta Baumbach indie version of Mm -hmm. the film that we would have enjoyed. And I think on this scale, probably the most that you were going to achieve. I'm not really sure what else we could have got out of it, really. I think it's like very entry level, but that's fine. Um, Is there anything else that you would like to talk about? Do you have any other critiques, any other thoughts, feelings? I thought the beginning was absolutely marvellous. I loved the third act with the Barbie takedown. I think maybe a little bit in the middle... Some of the story felt a little bit superfluous or rather I sort of really understood Ken attempting to recreate the patriarchy back in Barbie land. Um, But then I couldn't remember why Gloria and her daughter needed to go to Barbie land and why they went back. Mm -hmm. And it just felt like that was sort of... It got a bit messy. Yeah, a bit of a shoehorn story. Like there has to be a beginning and a middle and we can't just have the message. There needs to be a beginning, middle and an end here. And it felt maybe a little baggy in the middle or not quite as well formulated in the middle. I think you're absolutely right. I did love that kind of like deep programming of Barbies and that was hilarious going back to Barbie land and sort of seeing the impact of patriarchy and what and turning it into sort of Ken land and just getting a lot of like the very kind of like funny stereotypes of a very specific type of man so mm-hmm. you know the person that will pull out a guitar and like play his guitar at you for four hours yeah yep someone that wants to show you Godfather and can't <laughs> believe it and then also one thing that really got me which I absolutely loved was the reference to someone feeling the need to make you listen to Stephen Malcolm's works on vinyl. Uh, I felt personally quite attacked by that. That and um, watching the 90s Pride and Prejudice on repeat when you were (laughs) depressed, depressed Barbie felt extremely personally barbed. Um, I'm glad we didn't spend as much time, too much time in the real world. That's the bit that I cared about less. Yeah. Um, And then apart from that, I thought the comedy in it was really, really tight, except there were a couple of, there's a very awkward smallpox joke that I do, I know has caused upset afterwards with indigenous people. And I totally understand it because even at the time I was like, hmm, that feels a bit. So that a couple of jokes did not land. Yeah, there were a few things in this for me that didn't land. And that was one thing in particular where I did feel a little bit like, mm, that's going to age poorly. There's a joke about Jewish people as well that I, they stuck out for me, I think. Yeah. They stuck out as they felt like they shouldn't have been there. Yeah, I think there was one part in there where it sort of, there was a constant reference to like, you know, one of the worst things that could ever happen to you being that you get cellulite. And I know that that's supposed to be like a, a nod to the fact that women do genuinely think that this is the end of the world yeah um, but the sort of the constant repetition of it just made me feel a bit icky towards the end yeah that's like a one take joke let's not repeat it again we know what you're trying to go for apart from that the music i absolutely loved i had a great time listening to the soundtrack such a good soundtrack listen to it loads this week i just yeah. my main concern here is that i just don't want them to make a sequel either oh and all the fucking what is it lena dunham doing polly pocket bullshit it's like look we've done this we've achieved this once it's not going to happen again this was something i was going to ask you about actually because i think that like one of the the interesting things about oppenheimer and barbie is that like obviously oppenheimer is a biography of a person and barbie's like ip content but they are slightly original in to an extent um and i think part of why everyone sort of voraciously lapped these up is that they are quite different my concern with barbie going forward though is that one of the things that mattel have said is that this is going to unlock like a mattel cinematic universe and that concerns me somewhat because I don't need a Polly Pocket film I don't need a Hot Wheels film I don't need a Barney film like I don't need any of this and ultimately you could say that you don't need I never needed Barbie you know I'm slightly queasy now because this has been such a roaring success at the box office that this is now just gonna feel like a little bit like Pandora's box yeah the A you're not replicating this this Mm. isn't happening again you can't sort of pair Polly Pocket 
pocket with like the guy who invented I don't know the gas chamber or something like it doesn't it it made me think a lot about how Marvel pivoted quite aggressively to getting kind of like art house or like fairly notable mm-hmm. directors to direct some of their films I think yeah. a lot about Chloe Zhao who did Nomadland and then went to direct The Eternals yeah. which was largely a flop mm-hmm. um, so it's not necessarily always about getting like a big name director to sort of take your IP fair and turn it into something unique and exciting but isn't it funny that it kind of this signifies or at least it feels like it signifies that you know people do want that IP can't like the content that isn't a sequel or a requel or a reimagining or a Marvel Universe kind of... Obviously, this is what we've been waiting for for a while. And I think we're seeing the end of Marvel, hopefully, mm-hmm. to an extent. It feels like it's starting to peter out anyway. So this feels like exactly the kind of thing that audiences are looking for at the moment and it's drawing them to cinemas and then by way of five minutes later these studios are doing exactly the opposite of what made these films a success in the first place and it's like how can we market this how can we franchise this how can we prolong the success of this by creating more and more and more Mattel universes and um and it's just going to kill what made these films successful in the first place surely exactly great well that's a depressing end isn't it um okay well I'll counter that by saying that I just need everyone to one I when are we going to get a new Dead Man's Bones album because seeing Ryan Gosling sing again brought me such joy the two Ken songs I'm Just Ken and Push are magnificent <laughs> they are genuinely hilarious good songs and he has a lovely voice I just love him I just love him beautiful, so much beautiful beautiful singing voice I do ultimately need everyone to stop having... I mean, I feel this is the similar kind of thing with regards to Killian Murphy, actually, is that I need everyone to stop suddenly having revelations about Ryan Gosling because he's always been hot and funny. He's been here the whole time. Come on, guys. Wake <laughs> up. Also, can I just shout out um, Rob Brydon as Sugar Daddy Ken, which I thought was a joke. Turns out to be an actual Ken doll. It was actually a real Ken doll. That will send you down a whole other wormhole if you decide to Google, like, real Barbies. Like, um, it's mortifying the things they've been up to there are so many layers to this you know and i think that actually i kind of want to see it again to pick up on some of the stuff background stuff that i did miss i'd be interested to see it at home on tv on my tv Mm -hmm. to see whether i have the same enjoyment as i did in the cinema when everyone was like whooping and laughing and wearing cowboy hats so much pink i did not dress up for the well i dressed up for oppenheimer i didn't dress up for barbie dressed up as an atomic bomb (laughs) well i mean i don't i don't own anything pink and i didn't want to wear my a Gerwig t-shirt because you were wearing your Little Women t-shirt um, so I chose to wear a t-shirt that depicts the cover of the Chromex album Age of Quarrel which to me felt funny at the time I thought it was I thought it was brilliant inspired it's just got a, an atom bomb exploding on the front of it but I think when I went to the loo at the Odeon a few people gave me weird looks so <laughs> some sceptical glances there um, ultimately, which do you think is the better film? I think it's Oppenheimer. It's Oppenheimer, isn't it? Yeah, I don't think that's actually to be debated, to be honest. No, I think it is Oppenheimer. But I did have a lot of fun at Barbie. I had such a good time at Barbie, but I also think that was like such a fun day of cinema going, you know? Wasn't it great? And we had pasta and we hung out and we ate, it. we ate baked goods. And um, that's what living should be about. <laughs> it's just, just a great, great time. 
So that's us done. You can find us on Twitter. We're at the thirst and Instagram at the thirst pod, or you can drop us an email on the thirst pod at gmail.com. Let us know what you thought of both Barbie and Oppenheimer or share your experience of the Barbenheimer phenomenon. Please subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen and maybe give us a nice review because it helps people to find us with ease. We'll share a few links to anything we've mentioned on this episode on our blog and in the show notes, but the blog URL is the thirstpod.wordpress.com thank you very much bye bye barbie